Hey, what's up everyone? It's Dr. Devin Tan. Welcome to the Huddle Wisdom Podcast. This is where we talk about mental models, frameworks to help you in your parenting life. If you're in New Zealand, you may have seen a couple of articles in our local media recently uh, bringing attention to our mental health services or lack thereof. <laughs> Okay, that was a little bit facetious, maybe a bit uh, naughty of me to uh, say it like that. But, um, but maybe well-deserved because uh, about four years ago, our government committed $1.9 billion. That's a lot of money, $1,900 million. $1.9 billion, that's a lot of Big Macs, a lot of ramen. Uh, but it's not clear, you know, what that has been used for. Um, there's, there, there was some data telling us that a quarter of that money, which is a lot, which is a lot, a quarter, <laughs> that's, what is that, 500 million? That's a lot, was used to fund special positions in primary health clinics to uh, bridge the gap between G GP services or primary mental health services and mental, secondary mental health services. So bridging the gap between um, family physician, family physician care and sort of hospital level um, outpatient type community mental health services care. Um, but it's not actually really that clear whether it's helped improve mental health outcomes. Um, why am I talking about this? Well, because uh, I've worked in both public and, and private mental health services. And I have to say, I, mm, I, uh, I much prefer working in private for lots of reasons. But um, let me just say first, I have a lot of friends and colleagues who work in the public mental health services who are wonderful people and are good at what they do. Unfortunately, this is my opinion, but they work in a sick system, a system that I believe uh, is set up to fail. And let me, let me just say this as well, that this is not an episode that's supposed to be... Uh, just about me witching on about uh, how bad things are because I'm going to talk about why I think things are the way they are and what we might be able to do about them. And it's actually uh, more, the interventions are actually more accessible than we think they are. And it can start in your own home you can actually contribute to improving your country's mental health system by actually doing some stuff in the home that's actually very practical, things you can do every day. <laughs> um, <laughs> I try parenting. Okay, I'm, I'm, be <laughs> I'm being a dick, sorry. No, there's more than that. Okay, please bear with me. So, so. What am I going to say here? So, uh, there is, uh, you know, a lot of 
a lot of stuff out there in the media that talks about chronic understaffing, <laughs> understuffing turkeys maybe. You know, it's nonsense. We, we don't need more shrinks. We don't even need more money. Okay? Why? So, interventions, any intervention to fix a sick system needs to address the factors that gave rise to the problems that caused the system to be sick, right? I mean, that's obvious. So here's my take. First, what I observe to be some of the problems are this. So the first thing is, you know, there's been this watering down or dilution of the quality or intensity of the relationship between patient and doctors, uh, and especially in mental health. Uh, because we have inadvertently, uh, through systems of care, divvying up uh, pieces of work, we outsource the work of actually journeying with our patients. Psychiatrists and public services, uh, unfortunately, um, they get roped into doing this as, as part of their practice because there's just so much stuff that they have to do which doesn't count for anything. It doesn't actually add to patient, uh, doesn't add value to the patients. But it, it's, you know, the stuff that we have to do in the public service, a lot of it is meaningless. Meetings, 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 recording, recording, recording stuff that doesn't really matter in the end. Um, we run out of time. <laughs> we run out of time to do the things that actually matter. So, okay, that's just, but that's just part of it. Okay, that's just part of it. But psychiatrists and public services, unfortunately, unfortunately, are subjected to this kind of culture and it's pervasive. Um, psychiatrists get used to using so-called case managers um, <laughs> uh, and without them no work actually gets done you know we outsource we outsource therapy we're supposed to be the shrinks we're supposed to be doing the therapy we're supposed to be doing the journeying with our patient but we don't have the time to do it which is terrible. So, okay, now I'm not, I'm not trying to, um, to judge anyone, I'm just stating facts here. Case managers and therapists um, have limited autonomy, okay? And they have to be accountable to the wider team, including the psychiatrist, which might never see the patient. Okay, but which is crazy. It's crazy. So case managers and therapists, uh, they have limited autonomy. They're accountable to the wider team, uh, which is set up as a some as a somewhat hierarchical paternalistic structure. Nothing gets achieved without the team agreeing. The team meets once a week. Once a week, how inefficient is that? 
So before the case manager can do anything or make any changes to a patient's plan, he has to run it past the team, which meets once a week. So the patient is left in the lurch, having to wait, okay? What if the case manager goes on holiday, right? What if there are people in the team that go away on holiday? People that have nothing to do with the patient. They go on holiday, but the patient has to wait until the final decision for something that needs to be done has to be made. They have to wait. The patient gets more sick. It's so inefficient. We need to cut out the middleman. Preciousness over who does what and whether you can or not do something needs to be cancelled. You need to get rid of that. The other thing, though, is there is this great fear of being dragged through the mud for bad outcomes, for bad stuff that happens. Even though we know that we deal with risky situations every day. It's part of what we do. It's part of our bread and butter. There is an expectation that mental health services deal with risky situations. Okay? No one's going to drag you through the mud for trying. Just try. Okay, maybe that's overly simplistic to say. I think most people maybe do try. Um... I know certainly that my colleagues do. My um, some don't, though. <laughs> Sorry to say, some I I don't think some. Yeah, I, compassion fatigue is a thing. Compassion fatigue and burnout is a real problem. But there are redundancies in our system. I heard someone say there's no fat in the system. Well, there are. There there is. There is a lot of fat in the system that can be cut out. Okay. Next thing I've got to say is, and this is one of my pet peeves. Psychiatrists have also forgotten how to do therapy because of all this outsourcing stuff I talked about, because of all this redundancy stuff I talked about. They don't have time to actually do the thing that they were supposed to do. Right? And if this is the case, listen, you don't actually need a redundant, underskilled shrink <laughs> to treat mental illness. You don't actually need a degree to treat many mental health problems, actually. Because, I mean, what are mental health problems anyway? They're really just problems that we have uh, with our emotions. We get overwhelmed with big emotions and we don't know what to do with it or our thoughts start running away from us and we can't process them and they get us in trouble at work, gets, you know, in our relationships, gets us addicted to stuff. Right? It's not illness. These aren't illnesses for the most part. Okay? Some people, of course, do have illnesses. For example, like serious chronic psychotic illnesses, bipolar disorder, melancholic depression, etc. Okay? Now, um, I was saying before that, but the, but the majority of people who have mental health issues don't, I, in my opinion, don't actually need a psychiatrist. They just need someone 
who has the proper attitude, clinical knowledge, the ability to connect and empathize with humility and to speak candidly with truth to someone, to authentically connect with someone, right? So how did it come to this? How did it come to this place where psychiatrists and people in mental health services aren't actually doing the work that they're supposed to be doing? This is probably the critical bit, the maybe it's going to sound a bit judgy. I think there are some wider societal issues going on. There's been this erosion of resilience, okay, in our self-centered me, me, me culture, right? Culture of what? Culture of mine is mine. What's yours is yours. No one helps each other anymore, okay? No one can tolerate stress anymore. We're obsessed with comfort. We want things yesterday, fast. We want it now. Oh, but by the way, don't, don't disturb me while I'm scrolling through Instagram because that's annoying. I don't want to talk to you. I want to look at TikTok videos all day, okay? I don't want to get out of bed, all right? I want to look at my Facebook reels or whatever you know, hopes for the easy good life, whatever that means, through a screen. In case you didn't know, life is not easy, all right? <laughs> I don't think it was supposed to be easy. But this thing about div divvying up labor, okay, because it's easier. I mean, I understand that. We all have finite resources and we all have different gifts and skills and characteristics so we're not all the same we're all humans yes but we are not all the same clearly just look around look at my face look at my face it looks different to yours Cle clear as day okay we're all different a lot of different skills but you know we're supposed to use all our skills together so we can benefit benefit each other but we have these silos, these um, separate departments at work. You know, we've, we've divided up roles. Um, and okay, on paper it makes sense. You know, we each, each have to bring our own strengths to the table. But I don't, I'm not so sure if people actually work together as a whole that well. But that's the idea, you know. How's that working out in mental health services? Mm, I don't know if it is really. You can't outsource connection. You can't, okay? We all have to do our part. So it's not so much about what we should do or don't do. It's about who we are to each other, about who we need to be with one another, who we need to be to one another. That's what it's about. It's about connection. We can't outsource that. Well, I'm on the topic of outsourcing connection. Teachers are doing a lot of parenting these days, and they're not supposed to. That's not their job, okay? Parents, we need to grow up. We, <laughs> we need to do the work at home. I know a lot of you do. Some of you 
need to do more. You do. I need to do more. We all do. We need to strive for excellence in our parenting. Strong parents, strong homes equals strong schools. Simple as that. You cannot outsource your parenting to teachers. Okay? We, we, we should not, we should not um, allow ourselves to be addicted to comfort. We need to, we need to do the work. We need to do the work. It's hard. It's hard, but we need to do it. We fall into this trap of uh, believing that when we can't do something ourselves, then um, you know we should outsource the help. I, mean, I do that too for my plumbing needs, my electrician, my elect <laughs> my electrical needs. Uh, I'd go as far as to look at YouTube and try and you know, do it myself, do things myself, teach myself. But, um, you know, for the hard stuff, you know, I, <laughs> I don't trust myself to, to fix my um, toilet plumbing. So anyway, I digress. When it comes to the work of connecting with people, we, we can't outsource. We shouldn't. We shouldn't. Especially with children. Patience. It's not easy. It's not always comfortable. It might be that patient that's not easy to like. It might be that uh, young person that's not easy to like, but you might have to connect with them. And you have to do it. You have to do it. You have to get the skills. Don't have the skills? Get the skills. Get the skills. Don't have the skills to connect with people? I will teach you. I'll teach you. Maybe you don't, okay? It's not, but it's not rocket science, okay? It's not rocket science, but it takes effort. So there's a, um, uh, there's a researcher, his name's J.G. G. Scott. Uh, I think he's a primary healthcare physician. Um, and he and, it must be his daughter, I think, they developed this healing relationship model, which I think is amazing. So they talk about the elements and characteristics of what it takes for a clinician to um, develop um, themselves so that the relationship that they have with their patient is optimal for healing. Um, so they talk about uh, valuing the emotional bond uh, between patient and, uh, and, and doctor. So that speaks to a non-judgmental kind of stance. Uh, when you meet with your patients, there, there, there's resonance, you know, where you understand where the patient's coming from, you can kind of, um, uh, you, you get to their rhythms and it speaks to being fully present in the moment, you know, being fully attentive, engaged. Um, it also speaks to, this model also speaks to um, this idea of, of continuity of care. Uh, where you are fully committed to this patient's journey, you know, um, which means that you're there for all the micro interactions and large interactions, all interactions over the course of uh, the doctor-patient relationship. This, all of this breeds trust. 
It facilitates trust. The patient feels known, heard, understood, safe. And there's good research to show that a patient who is in a secure relationship with their healer, they actually do better when the healer prescribes interventions. Your success rate is higher. Patients feel more confident that things will work. There are also certain characteristics that um, J.G. Scott talks about, which the healer needs to possess. So you need to be clinically knowledgeable. You need to be mindful, emotionally stable, self-confident. And I would add, humble. Humble. Okay? So um, the, the things I take out of that is connection is key. All right? It allows us to appreciate the impact of our own uh, actions, our words, on the patient. And we have to be mindful of how that is going to cause them to respond and in turn cause us to react. So it's a live monitoring of each other's um, rhythms. Uh, and it's, it sounds complicated, but it's not. It's, and it's not something that you can easily understand intellectually. You have to feel it. Uh, which sounds a little bit esoteric. But I, I speak about, um, I've talked about this in other podcasts, uh, in other episodes before, this idea of um, magnets connecting. You know, you can't feel the, uh, the, the attraction of magnets, right? But you know it's there. It's very powerful. Um, and there's, there's resonance when things connect. Okay, and that's what you, you're, you're going for. You're going for resonance. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I wanted to share with you as well, uh, before I forget, there was an interesting study called the Grant Study in 2017, which looked at, um, I think I can't remember how many people, but um, uh, they found that the strength and closeness of relationships predicts happiness. Uh, over and above other things in life, more than anything else in life. The strength and closeness of relationships predicts happiness, which is amazing. Because you can take that in your healing relationships with your patients and know that, know that if you're just working on the strength of your relationships, you're going to help your patients feel happier, even just a little bit. Right? And that goes for any relationship any relationship, your kids, if you're parents, improve your connection with your kids, with your people, okay, through trust, compassion, grace, empathy. And that's what mental health services need. They need to learn, <laughs> need to learn how to connect with people, okay. And then everything else is much, much easier. It's about who we need to be for each other. It's not about what we need to do for each other or what we don't do or what we should do or what we ought to do. It's about who we need to be. So how do you do that? Do the course. Do my course. Darn it. 
keep telling you, do my frickin' course. <laughs> you want your patients to be happy, don't you? You want your kids to be happy? You only have so much time on earth. You only have so many years. Don't regret it. Don't let the ship sail. Once it's sailed, all you can do is just make sure that you don't make things worse. <laughs> um, but, you know, if I'm talking about kids here. Um, you know, if the ship sailed, making things better is going to be an uphill battle for you. <laughs> okay, so... Um, hmm, other things I should mention is, well, I think hmm, maybe this is a topic for another day. I'm running out of time and I rambled on and on and on. Social media, okay, and its full impacts, it, 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 makes, it makes anxiety worse for kids. Kids should not be exposed to social media if they're under 13, at least. At least, I would actually say 16. All right, comparison, comparison anxiety is a thing, not measuring up. Such a crucial time in a child's life. They're trying to find themselves. What is their identity? Where do they fit in? And then you amplify that with social media. How abusive is that? crazy it's crazy all right so now the good news the good news is that there's hard news the hard news which is good news is that we as parents as doctors as clinicians we can actually serve our patients and our children better we can inoculate them against mental health problems in this generation if we just simply learn to be who we need to be for each other. Gosh, it sounds so trite and overly simplistic. But the key is to learn how to connect with one another. Do the course. Do the darn course. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, that's enough from me, my friends. Hiya. I hope you found that helpful. I sure did. And I feel better. Hope you feel better. <sighs> Thanks for listening, my friends. By the way, um, yeah, France. Woo! You're coming up. Number two. Two listeners. Yeah. And my Spanish listeners, you're still up there, my friends. And then New Zealand and America. Hello, how are you? Um, great to have you. Thank you for your ears. And uh, yeah, look forward to talking with you again next time. See ya.